all of our, our worship service is, goes back and forth in this sort of a dialogue or a conversation uh, between us and God. God is the one who starts it. He begins with the call to worship. We respond uh, uh, through our prayers, through our confession, through song. Uh, God speaks to us through his word over and it goes back and forth here. And we're coming again here to God speaking to us uh, through his word again. A little bit longer time here though uh, through through the, the preaching and the reading of God's word. Uh, so we're going to uh, pick up uh, today in Mark, continuing our, our series through Mark. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, going to the end of the chapter uh, to uh, verse 56. Um, let's pray as we, before, we, uh, before we open up the word. Lord God, as we, we come before you with in this time where, where you are speaking to us, we need hearts that are open. We need ears that are open. We need uh, our, our wills inclined to, to you. Uh, that happens by your spirit. And we pray then that in this time your spirit would be going forth with the, with the word here. Um, and conforming us to, to seeing who you are and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be building us up in faith in him to see him more better, more beautiful, more believable than we ever did before coming in here. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, so uh, maybe just, just real quick context on uh, this, 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 uh, this, this passage we're going to be looking at this morning. Because it starts out, it says, immediately. And so we're thinking about what happened before. If you weren't with us or if last week or if you need a refresher, Jesus had just fed 5,000 People. Actually, it was more than probably 5,000 people because it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children who probably would have been there. It could have been upwards of 15,000 people. Jesus has just fed all of these people in, uh, out in a, a desolate place along the, the Sea of Galilee. And now we're going to be picking up here. This is actually just later that evening, uh, same day here, just a, a matter of hours afterwards. Um, so we're going to really focus on the first parts of this passage. It's of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, the end of it here is very much of, of uh, Jesus continuing his ministry. But we're going to focus on the, 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 the beginning part, the, the, the meat of this passage here. Um, so uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. This is the word of God. Immediately, he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat... And go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. In 2010, the reality TV show Undercover Boss debuted in America. Uh, The premise of the show is a top-level executive of a major company assuming the guise of an entry-level employee of of his or her company. And they work in the same environment as the others. They do the same jobs as the others. They rub shoulders with these entry-level employees. And all the while, the employees have no clue who it is with them. There's no recognition that that the one that's working alongside them sits at the top of the entire company. And at the end, all of the employees they work with and interact with are gathered together and their true identity is revealed to them. Now, if God walked among us, would we recognize him? And would we believe him even after he revealed himself? Well, it depends upon what our our expectations are of who God is. Is God coming near to us, even within the realm of possibility? Some people would say no due to the fact that he is so foreign to us, that he is transcendent to the degree that there's no way that we could ever meet him. It is a gap that is unable to be bridged. But others would also say no, but for the opposite reason, that God doesn't need to come to us because there's no gap to bridge. He's so close to us that it can even be said that he is in or within all things. And so what we have are these two opposites. We have God's transcendence and God's nearness. Either God is so far out there that his coming to us is impossible, or God is already so close to us that his coming to us is also impossible, or rather it's unnecessary because it erases the gap. There's no gap to, for God to, to, to jump over. But here's the thing, though. The Bible affirms both about God. God is transcendent. There is a distinction between him and creation, a distinction between him and us. He is so different from us. He is so foreign to us, uh, so unlike us that we could never meet him on our own. He's like a stranger. But God is also near in a way that maintains his distinctness from creation. But he comes near to us. He makes himself known so that we can truly know him. He meets us. And so the question for us is whether or not we recognize him in both of these ways. Do we only look at his transcendence or do we only look at his coming near? Well, he's both. And that's part of what makes God so majestically beautiful. As one of my old seminary professors used to say and what he's written, it's like meeting a stranger. And in this narrative about Jesus here walking on water, there is so much more than merely pondering the strangeness of his coming to the disciples in this way. All right, Mark, as he's writing this under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's pointing us to the nature of Jesus as being both the transcendent God and also the God who comes near to us. And if this truly is him, if this is truly Jesus here, then what about me? If he came to meet us, then have I met him? Do my eyes recognize him? Does my mind comprehend him? And is my heart drawn to him? 
Well, so in Jesus walking on the waters, we're going to see four things here. The first thing that we're going to see, Jesus walking on the waters here, we see the transcendent God. We see in Jesus here the transcendent God. So Mark isn't concerned with just giving us stories or facts about Jesus or propositions about Jesus. But he's writing to reveal who Jesus is to us. For us as his readers to know him and to know him as the son of God. And that's who we see him as here. If we take this narrative as history and truth, which we ought to, then, we, then Jesus must be divine. Because he's walking across the water. His human feet trod across the waves and carry him across the sea. He walks across into a headwind so strong that the disciples' boat struggles throughout the night as the 12 of them are manning the oars. And then when Jesus gets into the boat, immediately the wind stops. And Jesus demonstrates his lordship over the created order. This is a power that only God himself could have, right? Only the divine sovereign over all things is capable of this. No one other than the one who created the seas and is master of the waves and master of the wind could do this. Now, it's the most obvious revelation of his divine nature that we see here uh, in this passage. It's clear to anyone reading this and accepting its, its truthfulness, accepting its veracity, that we are reading about no mere man, but we're reading about God himself. But that's only part of it, though. There is so much more here, so many more incredible claims that are deeper once we scratch a little bit more beneath the surface. And what, what you can see on the surface is dwarfed by what isn't immediately apparent to us. And all of it here continues to testify to Jesus as being the transcendent God. And so we're going to scratch a little bit more underneath here to see what what we can uncover. And this might be a little bit deep here at times, but please just hang with me. Because we're going to see something absolutely beautiful and wonderful about Jesus here. Now every passage in the Bible has multiple contexts that need to be studied in order to pull out its full meaning. All right, we look at the surrounding context. What comes right before? What comes after? Where does it fall into the greater story of, of, of what's happening in, in a book or, or, um, or the story? Uh, we look at the historical context, the historical situation in which it was written, and what the original readers uh, would have understood as they were, were hearing this. But we also look at the biblical context, how it fits into the whole Bible, the rest of the Bible. Because there is a consistency in the whole Bible's message. And it references and alludes to itself over and over. We see this deep unity, which is also another reason why we should take this as the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures inspired by the Spirit of God. And so it it references and alludes to itself in this deep unity. And that's especially true in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, as they were inspired by the Spirit understood the person and work of Jesus in reference to the Old Testament. And they knew their Old Testament so well. It was the only part of the Bible that they had, and they took it seriously, and they studied it assiduously. And with that then, the Old Testament in multiple places refers, first of all, to God as the one who walks across the waters. Uh, Job 9, 8 He says that he commands the celestial bodies. He stretches out the heavens. God is the one who hung the constellations. And it says, quote, and trampled the waves of the seas. In Isaiah 43, 16, 
The Lord makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. But they knew more than just these individual verses, though. They also knew the stories that formed the repeated themes and the motifs of God's salvation. And if we think about the great stories of the Old Testament, our minds here will be drawn to the Exodus, which is the paradigm story of God's redemption. All right, the Exodus was more than just uh, God's people Israel leaving Egypt, but it was all of the events there, all of the events of being brought out and brought into safety. Two great events in, in, in the whole story. One is the crossing of the Red Sea, but also the provision of bread, of manna, to feed them in the wilderness then. And in Mark here, what happened immediately prior to, uh, to Jesus walking on the water? What was it that we studied last week? What is it that we heard? It was Jesus feeding the 5,000 in a desolate place, in a wilderness place. In fact, that happened earlier in the night here from the boat. It's an echo of God's giving bread to Israel in the wilderness. And now we have Jesus crossing the water, passing over the water, almost as if God was making a way through the sea. Who was a central character in the Exodus? It was the Lord God. And in ways reminiscent of that great event, here is Jesus putting on a display, echoing God. But that's not the only illusion that we see. Oh, we also find here that we're this, given this interesting note in verse 48. It says, Jesus was about to pass by them as he came across the sea. Is he referencing his speed? I mean, certainly, yeah, he's going fast against a headwind there. But it's also an allusion, though, to the Lord passing by in his glory. Do you remember when we read in Exodus 34 earlier this morning? Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. He stands on Mount Sinai, hidden there in a cave, and then the glory of the Almighty Lord passes by, rushed by. Moses had to be hidden away in the cave or else he would have been annihilated by the, the holiness of God's terrible and awesome glory. And now this time here, Jesus as the Lord God, though with this glory partially hidden by his humanity nonetheless demonstrates his divine glory to a degree here by walking across the water. And he meant to pass by them to reveal his glory and display his divine nature here as an echo of what he had done before. And there's one more to look at here. And it's his words to his disciples as he gets into the boat. In verse 50 he says, It is I, literally, I am. And those words to a Jewish audience would have caused their ears to perk up. Because they're the same words that the Lord God, that Yahweh used in the Old Testament to name himself. Who is God? Who are you, Lord? Who should I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. I am. The divine name of God himself given to his covenant people as their covenant God. And so Jesus trotting across the waters, coming across as the God of the Exodus present at the Red Sea, the God who displayed his glory as he passed by his servant Moses, now tells them, gets in the boat, I am. The point of all this here, Jesus is revealing himself to be the transcendent God as he puts his deity on display. Not only by the mere act of walking on the waters, 
but reflecting ways that he had previously acted and been revealed throughout the scriptures before. As God, he was there at all of those events. He was at the Red Sea. He spoke his name, I am, and his glory passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock on Mount Sinai. He's the God that we read of in the Old Testament. The God who dazzles in his glory and the God who humbles in his holiness. And when you read the Old Testament, you see just how different God is from us. Right? Genesis 1 lays it all right out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a distinction between God and his creation. God and us. And any likeness that we may have to him is only because he created us in his image. He is wholly other than us. His presence causes people to wilt. His words thunder forth and command all creation. And his transcendence is what makes him worthy of our praise and our worship. Do you really want a God who isn't transcendent? A God who's more like us than foreign to us? That's not God. That's any view of God that doesn't exalt his transcendence is idolatry because we are shaving away the parts of him that don't fit with our ideas or that the parts of him that we don't like to make him more relatable and make him more palatable to us. And if you read the Bible, and if you come away with a view of God being anything but foreign to us, then you're reading it wrong. It makes clear here in Mark that Jesus is this transcendent God, this same God. Jesus may be a friend of sinners, he is, but that doesn't make him our buddy. Right? He reveals that he is this transcendent God. But in Jesus walking on the waters, though, we see second also that he is not just a transcendent God, but that he's a covenant God. He is the covenant God. What does covenant mean? It refers to a promise. It refers to an oath. Covenants are what bind people together. Right? Formal relationships are built upon covenants. Marriage, a covenant between a man and a woman agreeing to be faithful to one another. Legal covenants, certain stipulations to be upheld and promises kept. And covenants are used to seal relationships. They're personal. They're made between, between persons and uniting them by pledges and promises that are sealed. Sealed with rings. Sealed with ink. Sealed with a handshake. And when we talk about God being a covenant God, it gets at how he relates to us. He does so through covenants. He may be transcendent, but that doesn't mean that we can't know him. He becomes personal with relationships that are enacted by his covenants that he makes and keeps. And the covenants that he makes are ones that we will, are, the covenants that he makes are that we will know him. <clears throat> so that he will be our God and we will be his people. And if we turn those old, again to those Old Testament illusions that we looked at here, to, to God as Jesus walks on, on the sea, we understand that he isn't only the transcendent God, but he's specifically the covenant God. Right? He gets into the boat, and what's he say? It's I. He gets into the boat. I am. That's the Greek translation for the Hebrew covenant name of God, from where we get Yahweh. That name Yahweh, God's covenant name, was reserved for Israel to use with him. It wasn't for the nations, it wasn't for foreigners, or those who didn't know him any more than just as creator. It was the name of his covenant relationship with his people. 
Why? Because he was their covenant God. And he was bound to them by his promises to them. And the Exodus event here was an act of of the Lord's covenantal character towards his people. Why did he come to their aid in the first place? Why did he free them from, from slavery in Egypt? He heard the cry of his people. He saw their affliction. And as Exodus 2 says, he remembered his covenant. He wasn't content to let them be crushed at the Red Sea or to go hungry in the wilderness because he was their covenant Lord God. And then he further revealed his glory as the covenant Lord at Mount Sinai as he bound himself further by by the covenant. He passed by Moses with his covenantal words, the Lord, the Lord, or really Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, keeping steadfast love, or rather keeping covenant faithfulness to the thousands of generations. And that moment was even a reaffirmation of his covenant, despite his people having sinned and failed in their obligations to him already. And so what's it mean that the transcendent God is a covenant God? He isn't content to just stay far apart from us. His covenantal being means that he is personal and he wants to get to know us. Even though we may not be able to get to to know him if we're left all on our own, the transcendent God is also covenantal and he comes to us in covenantal relationship. He wants to get to know us. He wants to get to know you. And if he's covenantal and he makes promises and keeps promises, then you can trust whatever it is that he says about himself. And it may be that there are things that we don't like about God or that rub us the wrong way or are confusing or maybe we have a moral indignation about. But that's, but that's what happens, though, when you come into contact with a transcendent God. He's not like you. And still, though, his covenantal character means that he's trustworthy What he says about himself, how he reveals himself, it's true. He's not leading us astray, but he's leading us to see him and to conform ourselves around who he is and who he says he is and what he says. And Jesus, though, is the ultimate manifestation of his covenantal and relational character. Because ultimately, when Jesus is walking upon the waters, we see also here that God comes near. Part of the covenantal part of it is coming near to know us. God here, Jesus, as he's walking on the waters, comes near. Jesus, uh, coming across the sea, the transcendent God, the covenantal God, what's he do? He gets into the boat with the disciples. God climbs into the boat with these men. The transcendent and covenantal God gets so near, so near to humanity, so near to the disciples that he gets into the boat with them. And you start to see the the significance of this now, right? We read over this seemingly small moment, but it's incredible. God comes near to them in Jesus, near enough to be in the cramped quarters of a boat with these regular guys. Near enough to come into creation, clothing himself in true humanity, rubbing shoulders with the entry-level employees, making himself known to us, and inviting us to know him in all his foreign, yet personal and covenantal being. As we consider Jesus, then, we see in new ways and to new degrees the extent that this transcendent God truly is covenantal and has come near to us. Both of these aspects are necessary for a proper view of God. Because if he were only transcendent, then how could we know him? 
He'd be too far off from us. The ladder too high, the rungs too far apart, the gap too daunting. But if he were only near, then he wouldn't be a God worthy of our worship. He wouldn't be sovereign. He wouldn't have this transcendent holiness that puts us in awe. He wouldn't be distinct from us. Yet in Jesus Christ, the transcendent God comes near. He reveals himself and with the purpose of being known. In a way, he's like Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird. Boo Radley, the elusive and reclusive man who lived in the basement of the neighboring house. A man who hadn't been seen in public for a very long time. And a man who was a source of speculation from the neighbor kids, Scout and Jim. And Scout knew a little bit about Boo. She knew the rumors. She knew the rumors of how he ate cats, how he was a crazy man chained up in the basement. She had never heard him. Uh, she had never seen him, never heard his voice, but she knew all the stories. But she, did she really know Boo? And throughout the story, then, Boo leaves, leaves little revelations of himself to Scout. Eyes looking out from behind the window curtains with curiosity. Trinkets and things hidden in, in a hole of a tree. And Scout didn't know for sure, but somehow she suspected that they were from Boo. And from those revelations, she was able to recognize Boo as he, come, as he came to her at the end of the story. Not only to see his pale face for the first time, but to recognize him. To truly see him. To see him and know him, not as a murderous or a ravenous man, yet a kind and timid man. And his revelations cut through her own speculations and delivered truth about himself to her. She didn't recoil in fear, but she took his hand. He wanted to be known, despite the distance, and she was able to recognize him. In a way, this is what God does when he reveals himself to us in Jesus. Right, left to ourselves, contemplating the transcendent, we would never be able to know him. The best that we would have on our own is just mere speculations about him. But he reveals himself to us so that we can know him and be in relation with him and to get past our own ideas and to be corrected by his knowledge of himself. And he reveals himself to us most fully in Jesus Christ. God came to us personally and we're able to meet with him in an intimate way. See, this is the beauty of Jesus. He, his incarnation, bridges the gap between God and humanity. The transcendent God came so near to us that we would know him in the context of a covenantal relationship. Personally, trustworthy, the Son of God came near. God came near as he took on flesh. He didn't only come near as he got into the boat. He came so near to live the human experience. If I can get my pages apart. He came so near to even dwell among the presence of sinful humanity. He knows what it's like to be one of us. And he came as the covenant God. He came so near to us to even taste death for us. See, God may be faithful to all of his promises, but can we say the same about ourselves? I mean, how many empty promises have we made to God? How many times have we failed to keep up our end of the bargain for staying in a relationship with God? 
And as we've been estranged from God, not only by his holiness, but by our sin and our failures and wrongdoings against him and others, Jesus came to heal that relationship and to reconcile us to himself so that we would know him deeply. He came bearing a cross to bridge the gap. He came to give us his covenantal faithfulness, the covenantal faithfulness that he lived to the Father so that then that might be counted to us that we might be seen by God the Father as being covenantally faithful to him, just as Jesus the Son was. And Jesus, the covenant God, lived and died to seal his people into a covenantal relationship that cannot be breached, a covenant that draws us into him so tightly that we are his eternally by faith in the Son of God, crucified in the flesh that he took for us. Are you searching for God this morning? Are you wondering what God is like? Friends, there's no need to further speculate. The search is over, but look to Jesus. God has come near to you. You don't need to be looking to him any longer. You can know him. And that's not only for seekers either. Because for those who know God, we know him. We continue to know him more fully and continue to get to know him through Jesus. We know him in our situations. We look at life. We look at God through the lenses of Jesus. And if you want to get to know Jesus or if you want to get to know God better throughout your Christian life, it's not done apart from Jesus. Rather, we continue to look to Jesus to see the image of the transcendent covenantal God who has come near to us, who has drawn us into fellowship. We know all of God through him when we look at him. We know the Son, and then the Son reveals the Father. And then Jesus sent the Spirit then to continue to reveal him to us in the Scriptures. And as Jesus walked on, upon the waters and came into the boat, then the fourth thing that we need to think about, the last one, is recognizing God. Right? Do we recognize him? The disciples look out and they cry in fear at the sight of Jesus walking on the water. Are they seeing a ghost upon the sea? Yet when he gets into the boat, they're all astounded at what happened. I mean, should they really have been astounded at this point? Shouldn't they have expected something extraordinary? Because they had just seen 5,000 plus people miraculously fed by Jesus just a few hours before. In fact, they even took part in it. They were going around with the baskets afterwards, collecting all the scraps. Didn't they get it? It was they were holding it right in their hands. How could they have missed all of this? How could they have not recognized that this must have been Jesus walking out on, on the waters there? Well, we can be near Jesus, but not truly know him. Or not understand the implications of his coming. That knowing Jesus is knowing the transcendent God who came near. See, there's a difference between knowing facts about a person and knowing a person. Your closest friend, your spouse, whoever it is, you know all about them, right? You know the facts of their life, you know their bios, you know their preferences, etc. But that's not what it means to know them, right? It's not, it's not even time that's spent with them. How many marriages consist of two strangers who live in close proximity to each other and make sure that the household runs okay, but don't truly know each other? See, it's not facts. It's not proximity. It's through conversing deeply, having mutual interest and genuine love. Don't take for granted the things that you know about Jesus without communing with him. See, it's not about proximity. 
It's about a softened heart. It's about a heart that recognizes him. And Jesus seemed like a ghost to the disciples when he came to them at first. He didn't seem real. Instead of being a comfort to them or bringing hope, he struck terror into them. And there are moments when God may seem only as real as a ghost to us. The thought of him doesn't bring comfort, but it brings fear or anger. Because this doesn't look like I imagine things to be. Or we simply don't expect him to show up because it seems like he's been ghosting us. Like the transcendent God has just stayed silent and far away. He's there, maybe, but he ignores my words. He doesn't take my calls. Is he hearing my prayers? And it's just the same. Our progress as Christians can feel frustrated. As frustrated as the disciples pushing against the wind all night in their exhaustion. I haven't been spending all night rowing against the wind. I've been spending my whole life trying to get control of this sinful desire or being rid of this thought or this attitude or this habit. And if God has promised to make us his sanctified people, then why am I not experiencing growth like I thought? Like God has promised me. I've prayed and I've prayed for this to be gone. Why is this sin still there? But that's where Jesus' words are so sweet and so reassuring when he gets into the boat and he says, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's I. I am the covenant Lord who's come near to you, so near that I died to be your covenant Lord in my faithfulness, not in yours. He's the covenant God. He is the one who keeps his covenant. And yes, his covenant promise is to make you holy, to wash your heart clean, to make you more like himself by the Spirit. And yes, it is frustrating to be still dealing with the same struggles over and over. But is he unfaithful if he doesn't take them away all at once? Is he unfaithful if his work is a slow progress within you? Brother or sister, he is faithful to complete it all the way into the day of Jesus Christ. And there are real frustrations in the Christian life. Frustrations with the progress for our Christian lives and holiness, of not being the people that we hope to be. There are frustrations as we look at the church. Why doesn't the church look like I dream it to be? Like, why is it so full of hypocrites? Why is it full of people pulling it one way or the other or casting such shame upon it from within? Why is the church not growing as I imagined? Or there are frustrations in his redemptive plans seemingly not coming to fruition. There are no buds to be seen despite the springtime. But in all those moments, though, who is God? He's Jesus. He's not far off. And he's not aloof in his transcendence, but he has come near to us for you to know him. He's a covenantal God. Look at life through his covenantal faithfulness, established through his body and blood given for his people. Friends, look at Jesus. God isn't a ghost, but he is as real as the flesh and blood that he took. The same flesh, the same blood that was crucified and spilled out. For sinners just like you and myself. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so unlike us. And we're so glad for that. That you are not like our own petty selves. That you are immense. 
that you are beautiful, that you are holy in ways that we just